Jesus is delivering what is called the Sermon on the Mount. He has lots of, of people following him now. He, he has done kind of a tour of miracles in the surrounding cities. And people are following him now to see what this amazing miracle worker is going to have to say. And what Jesus begins to do is he begins to outline what life is like in God's kingdom. How do you, how do you live life God's way? And we who say we are followers of Jesus, or any of you considering what it might be like to be a follower of Jesus, following Jesus means being obedient to these things that Jesus is teaching. We're about halfway through, and in this particular section, and we're going to spend two weeks on on this section, um, Jesus is going to be talking about following God wholeheartedly without any distractions in life. And so we're going to read the first of two sections this week. We're going to start in verse 19, so Matthew 6, 19. And if you're new to the Bible and want to know how to find the books, like any other book, there's a table of contents at the very beginning of the Bible that will tell you the different, the different names of the, of the books and what page it's on, and you go there. So we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. The chapters are the big numbers, the verses are the small numbers. So we're in 619, and I'm just going to read it for you, and then we'll break it down a little bit. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I'm going to reread the first three verses, and then we're going to spend some time, or the first two verses, we'll spend a few minutes talking through those. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, when Jesus is giving this teaching, he is he's basically trying to shift his followers from thinking about the temporary things to thinking about the eternal things. Thus, the idea of the things you buy with money, they are ruined by rust, they deteriorate, they are stolen, or moths, which were extremely dangerous to possessions back in Jesus' day and time, moths destroy them. So there's this idea that the things that we buy and can often focus on, are deteriorating. But followers of Jesus do not focus on those things which deteriorate and which are temporary. Followers of Jesus and those who live life in the kingdom think about the eternal aspect of life. They focus on things that are in heaven and that are eternal. That's what followers of Jesus do. So, couple basic questions that we might ask from this. One is, does that mean we then earn heaven? 
if we need to focus on heaven and lay up treasure in heaven, does that mean that the things we do earns us heaven? And that's a very simple biblical answer because all of the New Testament, when you take it all as, as, as an entire work, would say very emphatically, no. You do not gain entrance to heaven by your good works. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus and apart from works. Very plain and consistent teaching of the New Testament. So no, we're not earning salvation. Well, are we then adding to our eternal reward through good works? In other words, could you look at this and say, the more we do for God, the more we get in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So the more we do, the more we get. And what I could say if you're asking that question today is, maybe. Because there are two views. One looks at this passage here and says, yes, you're going to get to heaven and you are going to be rewarded based on your good works. In other words, you're going to have more stuff in heaven if you accomplish a lot of things for God that are eternal. Because you're laying, you're making these deposits, you're putting things away that will be enjoyed in heaven. However, there is another view. And that comes from a passage, uh, one of Jesus' parables, where he talks about this worker who hires people for his vineyard. And, and, and these workers come at all different hours of the day. And there's this little chaotic moment at the end when the man who hires them pays them all the same amount. He pays them all a full day's wages, whether they work for 12 hours or they work for one hour. And he says, what's at your business? I'll pay people what I want to pay them. It's more than enough. And you could argue that what Jesus is saying there is, through faith in Jesus, you get heaven. It's more than you'll ever need. Does anybody get more than anyone else? Don't worry about it. Because what we get is more than enough, and everybody gets the same. They get to enjoy all there is to enjoy in heaven. So maybe we store things aside for the future. Maybe Jesus is simply saying, don't think about temporary things, think about eternal things. But at the very least, he is telling people that the kingdom focus, followers of Jesus are focused on building God's kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, and not gaining stuff. So this whole thing of, He who dies with the most toys wins. That's not kingdom thinking. All right. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Or where your heart, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the darkness, if then the light, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now that seems to make absolutely no sense. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, the Jewish philosophy of the eye, it was kind of like an idiom, okay? Your eye, your symbolic metaphorical eye, was the filter that you used to view the world. In other words, your eye was your worldview. And what Jesus was saying to his first century audience in their philosophical way of thinking was, if your filter is correct, then everything will make sense. 
If your filter is bad, then you're a mess. So if your filter, your eye, was understanding kingdom things and the eternal things, then your whole approach to life will be clear and will put you on the right path. You will see clearly in what you do. But if you have a temporary filter where you're just thinking about yourself and gaining possessions, that is going to lead you down the path of darkness. And everything you do is just going to feed that, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So Jesus is talking about a worldview with the eye. And he says, you have an eternal worldview, you're headed in the right direction. You have a temporary material worldview, you're in for a miserable life. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the word despise or hate, and we've talked about this before, in the Greek language and in the Hebrew language, Okay, these were languages that were not near as rich and full as the English language, where we have 17 words for any one thing. Okay, they shared words, Greek and Hebrew, especially Hebrew, and, and context dictated the meaning of those words. So when you see the word hate or despised, it usually is going to mean to hold in a distant second. Like you'll look in the Old Testament and it'll talk about a guy having a few wives and one he loved and one he hated. Okay, now the idea here in context is he had a favorite and the other one was a, second, was, was a distant second. So when Jesus says you can't serve two masters, you're either going to hate one or love, love one and hate the other, he's saying that our love for God needs to be first and foremost and everything else a distant second. You can't love to the same. We have a few kids, we love them all the same in theory. <laughs> and, and that doesn't go with God. He is first. Everything else is a distant second. That's how followers of Jesus live their life. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about a passage in Exodus where God tells Moses, My name, my name is Jealous. Which was his way of saying jealousy is actually a central part of his nature. And by that, what he's saying is, I don't play second fiddle to your heart. I am first. I do not share. I am central to your life. So the main point in Jesus' teaching so far is God is first, money, possessions, anything else, distant, second. And this is a message that is all through Scripture. Now I want to go back to the book of Genesis. And um, we're going to start in Genesis 12. <coughs> we're going to continue in Genesis 12. And, and, and to, to set the, the tone here, God is about to make an example. He's about to choose somebody to become the father of his people. So the earth is formed and Adam and Eve rebel and mankind kind of does its own thing. And now it's to the point where God is ready to select a human, an individual and he is going to make this individual the figurehead for the people of God. He says, I'm going to be your God. 
You're going to be called after my name. I'm going to bless you and all this. And, and, and he needs to make sure that this is the guy and he needs to show everybody what it takes to follow him by making this guy an example. This is called the call of Abraham. Only at this time his name was still Abram. 12.1 Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he goes on to kind of describe to Abraham or to Abram what it means that he is going to become a people of God. But what was the hoop that God had him jump through? Leave. Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Up and leave and wander to a place that I will show you. Now is that a big ask or a small ask? It's pretty big. He just comes to him someday and says, Hey, leave it all. Now, the equivalent, if God were to tell us, you know, I want to make you great and do some great things through you, but I need you to move to Siberia, and I need you to do it now. That's huge and that's scary. Okay, so that's not something small. That's not, hey, I want to make a people out of you. I need you to just believe, swear a little bit less, and give me your money. Give me a percentage of your money. That's not what God asked him. He asked him, I'm going to make you a people after my heart. Leave everything. So, let's follow this on. Genesis 17. We see the second hoop. <coughs> when Abram, starting at verse 1, was 99 years old. So how, I mean, you know, ripe human individual. He has lived many days. Almost as old as Norm. I haven't told a Norm joke in years, so... And I didn't even plan on that one, so God must have given me that. 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, my promise with a sign. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham, getting excited. No longer shall your name be called Abram, meaning exalted father. Your name shall be called Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant, promise with a sign or symbol, 
between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant promised with a sign that symbolizes the commitment to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Abraham getting more excited by the minute. And God said, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Promise with a sign symbolizing the commitment. You and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant promise with a sign that symbolizes the commitment which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you every male among you shall be circumcised you shall cir- you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you he goes on down in verse 14 Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. (coughs) Now, a covenant is a promise with a sign or a symbol that shows or symbolizes the extent of the commitment. So I'm married my wife Kelly. I've been given a ring, and when I do a wedding, I say, bless, O Lord, this ring to be a sign of the covenant made by this man and this woman. Then I explain that the reason a ring symbolizes the covenant is it's round. It never comes to an end. It's typically gold or made of some kind of precious metal that lasts as long as love itself. So the sign of the covenant symbolizes the promise. Now let's be very real here. God says to symbolize the commitment that you will have as my follower. Cut a chunk off of your penis. That is a big deal. Men are not going to do something like that unless they are committed to the cause. And God decides in all of His wisdom that the best way to show for years to come the level of commitment that He requires from His people is for a man to see that and be reminded that that is the level of commitment. And that is far beyond believe and act nicer around people. Can you imagine life at the dinner table that night when he has his family and his relatives and his male servants and everyone invited to be a part of this covenant and they are full-grown men. And he says, God came to me today and he says we get to be his people and he is going to bless us and we are going to be his chosen people, and he is going to be our God. And everyone's leaning in, and it's exciting. And then he says, there's one catch. We have to do something to symbolize our level of commitment. We have to cut off our foreskins. There was probably a lot of awkwardness and silence 
Because this is a massive requirement, is it not? But God wasn't done. Turn to Genesis 22 if you have your Bible. (coughs) Genesis 22. I'm a little short on time because of Paul, so I'm going to give you the gist of it. God has... Abraham has a son named Isaac whom he loves dearly. And God comes to Abraham and God says, I want to make my covenant with you. It's going to be a lasting covenant. You're going to be my people and I will be your God. And as a sign of your commitment, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him on the altar. This will be a sign. And the Bible says that Abraham got a couple of his servants and he took his son with him toward the mountain to the place where God would show him. And they came to the place and he bound his son on the altar and he drew the knife back. And just before he went forward with the knife to kill his son, to be obedient to God's command the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, okay, you have proven now. You are the one. You have shown that you are faithful, that you are committed, and you will now be the people of God. Leave it all. Take a chunk out of your penis. Kill your son. Those were the things that God used not only to test Abraham, but to show him the level of commitment that was required and to show all of us the level of commitment that is required to be a follower of God. Far, far greater than just believe and clean up your life a little bit. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. This is in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Jesus looked at looking at him loved him. He loved him. And he said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. <coughs> Jesus loved this guy. Mark wants us to know that Jesus looked at him and there was something unique about this guy. Jesus looked at him. He had compassion on him. He loved him. He was rooting for him. And he gave him a test of obedience. Saying essentially the same thing that he said to his other disciples. Leave it all and follow me. This man was only looking for eternal life. He was a believer. He followed the rules. And he wanted eternal life. He was a believer and he did the right kinds of things. He kept the commandments. He was a believer. But Jesus says, leave it all. And follow me. Now, Jesus didn't require that from all of his followers. That was not a regular teaching of the early church. There's nothing inherently spiritual about poverty. 1 Corinthians 13 says you can sell everything, and if it's with the wrong heart, it doesn't even count. But what Jesus was doing was sifting this man, giving him the one thing that he knew was between him and God to see if he would give it up. And he went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now, we don't see this kind of thing in churches today. Jesus wanted him to follow him, and he gave him something hard. I think if this were to be rewritten, you know, the way churches act today, Polaris included, (coughs) the story may have gone something like this. A rich man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, only believe in me. We meet together for an hour on Sunday and an hour on Wednesday. We would love for you to join us. We have free coffee and donuts for you and your family. Drop off your kids at our children's center. They will have a blast. We have events for your teens, they'll love it here too. We have dynamic teaching, videos, multimedia presentation, dramas, and a live band. We have a rockin' band. We also have monthly events for you to meet a lot of friends and get connected. We meet in a gorgeous $8 million state-of-the-art facility. You can come to open gym, parenting classes, cooking classes. Here's a brochure with everything we offer. You are going to love it here. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. But there's an element of consumerism there that we don't see demonstrated from God to Abraham or Jesus to the rich young ruler. There isn't a, ooh, we want you so bad and we're here to make it easy for you. Leave your family. Circumcise yourself as a grown man. Kill your son. Sell your possessions. Those were the kinds of things that demonstrated the level of commitment that God himself called for. I think what's happened in the church, and again, you know, those those statements that I read there, those were like the things that were taken right out of, except for the $8 million facility part, right right out of, of, of Polaris marketing in the past. And I was a part of those things, okay? But I think two different, two different churches have emerged today in America. There's the movement of followers of Jesus that has always been around. People who love God with everything. People who are committed 
focused on his kingdom and nothing else. People who live for the eternal and not the temporary. That's one church. And that is the church. And then there is the organization, the church, that is committed to itself and keeping the name up on the billboard and growing as a well-led organization and essentially making things easy for the people who attend. The one is made up of followers. The other is made up of believers. People who have better attitudes sometimes and swear a little bit less than the next guy and believe the right things about God. But I can tell you that I want to spend the rest of my life in the movement, not the organization. I am becoming more and more sold out to building the movement, and I hope that you are too. And I hope that 10 years from now, Polaris Christian Church can be nothing more than the name of a place. And every week, many, many people of the movement, followers of Jesus, meet in that place briefly, encourage the snot out of each other, worship God like he deserves, and then hit the doors out into the places where they live and influence and change the world around them because that's what people of the movement, generous followers of Jesus, do. It's a whole other level of commitment. One last passage. Let's look at Luke 14. Jesus described the church that he saw. And it's far more than just an organization of people who believe the right things about God. Verse 25, Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, hold in distant second, his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, his own instrument of death, and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him saying this man began to build what he was not able to finish, or what king going out to encounter another king at war will not sit down first and, and, and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while well, the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus calls for a far greater commitment than what most of us in his church are giving him. And I want to take the rest of my life 
to give him whatever he may ask for. To be a part of the movement, to be a true follower of Jesus who does more than just believe the right things and then whatever things I feel like doing, but who does the things that Jesus says to do in his word. And I hope that you will make that commitment as well.